Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, leaders, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. My objective as a teacher is to focus on the passion, humanity, and hope around education and to provide a platform for the myriad of voices that have something to say and teach us all. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at educatinglaura. Thank you so much for deciding to spend a bit of time with me today. I cannot believe this episode is coming out on the 1st of November. Where is the time going? It's just insane. I feel like I've lived like 10 different years in 2021. But I feel like I've been in remote forever, but I also feel like I've had so much time with my classes in person at the same time. It's just a very bizarre situation. I'm not going to speak for too long because this is quite a long episode. It's an episode with Claire Mackey from Teachers Talk Texts. She's incredible. I have so much time for her. This is like a real staff room conversation, the kind of conversation I would have with a colleague, just hashing a few things out. So I think if you're an English teacher, especially, you'll love this. Also, if you are studying English or literature, you'll love it too. I just want to tell you this one anecdote. My year 12s had their exam on Wednesday, the 27th. I'm pretty sure my dates are just very blurry at the moment, but I was in with them studying for the week prior my school ran a series of different lectures because obviously the poor kids had been remote for a while and I just kind of like to come in and be there as like a sounding board to ask the right questions to facilitate group work that kind of thing I don't do a lot in terms of planning or you know giving them anything new I kind of want to solidify what they know and empower them and make sure that they feel as though what they have to say is valid and I have this lovely student who every lesson would come in with questions and I love students like this that have gone home, done their research and come in for clarification. And so this student had this question and asked me how I would interpret this particular piece of evidence in the text because he felt that it was important but couldn't really get his head around how to actually articulate that. And I explained to him how I would talk about it. And he just looked at me and I said, I haven't sold you, have I? And he goes, yeah, I get that. I just don't feel as though I'd be able to say it well. And another one of my students jumped in and explained it her way, which honestly was so much better than what I had said. Even though I feel as though I could have argued it my way, what she said was so much more profound. And he goes, yeah, cool. I could use that. And it just made me the happiest teacher. And the the boy was like, please don't be offended. And I'm like, I'm the least thing from offended. I'm so proud that a student has not only trumped my answer, but given a completely different answer because they thought for themselves critically and I just love it. So that's my little anecdote, a real teacher high for me. And I speak about it in this episode, how much I love actually being irrelevant in a classroom. And that sounds really kind of productive but when students are so into it so insightful that they can just run the class that's honestly my most exciting time as a teacher and you do tend to get to that time in term four with year 12 which is just lovely and it's kind of sad for me because I'm not I'm not going to see them again as a class you know it's that whole thing where you build a family for a year and you say goodbye and then that's it but um I know that they're going to do amazing things in the world because I had a really, really beautiful class 
Anyway, I'm not going to say any more except that if you like the podcast, please share it on social media. Tag me at Educating Laura and Claire at Teachers Talk Texts. Please follow along on Apple, subscribe on Spotify, leave a review. All of those things really, really help. And I will see you in two weeks. Oh, I did want to clarify because in the episode with George Koros last week, he kind of got me on a technicality. So I wanted to clarify when I talk about curriculum needing to change, I don't mean the Australian curriculum. Obviously, that document is very hard to change quickly. What I'm talking about is like the unit planners and the actual curriculum that we teach within the school that obviously takes time to plan and to solidify in terms of assessment, rubrics, whatever. So when I talk about the shift in in curriculum, yeah, obviously there needs to be shift in the Australian curriculum on a global scale or a national scale. But what I mean more is that teachers need time to actually work and rework their own curriculum that is you know the kind of ground roots curriculum the ones you're actually delivering in class okay now I will see you in two weeks hello Claire how are you I'm very well Laura how are you good it's so good to have you here we had a conversation I'm trying to think it was this year wasn't it on your podcast teachers talk text it it was it was earlier on this year I want to say February or March maybe yeah it feels like a blur I wasn't sure if it's 2020 or 2021 but it was still great it was it was it was I think you were you were almost one of my first Instagram friends ah that then became a podcast guest as opposed to someone who I'd been referred to or who had answered my desperate pleas in the VCE teacher <laughs> Facebook groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There you go. I'd like to start by asking about you as a student, what we like. I loved school. I loved school so I loved school so much. <laughs> yeah. There are photos of me in primary school. I want to say year three, year four, I used to make my friends play schools after school. I had mm-hmm. the desk with the ink well and the the lift you could lift up the desk and put things inside it and I had a I had a blackboard and some chalk and I would teach and I made workbooks I I did it all I've yeah so I think I've always really enjoyed learning and and teaching and I went to a beautiful high school I was really lucky I was a scholarship student I think my parents always say oh we would have got you there somehow, mm-hmm. but I think being there on scholarship did make life a little bit easier. Yep. And I threw myself into everything. I was in the magical group and the choir and the I played the trumpet because in year seven they said we need someone to play the trumpet. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I was in all the productions. I played every sport. It was a small girls' school, so there wasn't a lot of, you know, you just kind of everyone had to pitch in. And I had some of the most beautiful, beautiful teachers. And I loved that school so much that I ended up teaching there mm-hmm. as a graduate teacher. So I think it's kind of a credit to an organisation or a school if students then want to come back. Absolutely. Well, the school yeah. that I teach at now, there are probably 10 or 11 ex-students now back on staff and probably more actually probably more than that that I didn't know as students so yeah I think that I wouldn't teach at my old school let's put it that way so I think it is a credit to want to come back and be part of that community as a teacher did Mm. it feel different for you as a teacher or was it what you expected it to be 
it did feel different partially because it went co-ed in the time that I had graduated. So I think I was out for maybe six years and in that time the school had made the decision to go co-ed. So when I started it was still all girls and within the next couple of years boys had come in. And maybe that was another reason I I ended up staying there nearly a decade mm-hmm. So because it was not the, it wasn't the same school. It was a new version of that mm-hmm. school, a new iteration. But yeah, I really liked teaching with my teachers and having them, having the one, especially the English teachers who'd really been my mentors. A lot of them were still there when I started. They kind of, you know, took me under their wing yeah. and showed me the way. And I felt, yeah, incredibly lucky to to have that opportunity as a graduate teacher. I, yeah, I don't know if everyone gets quite the same experience as I had so yeah it sounds special it definitely sounds special Mm. yeah yeah how do you think your own students would describe you as a teacher oh uh enthusiastic Mm -hmm. maybe (laughs) um I'd like them to say that I'm firm but fair Mm -hmm. I set high expect I set high expectations for myself and so therefore I expect the same from my students but at the same time, if anyone ever needs help, more than happy to help in whatever whatever way I can. I think maybe students at year seven and eight level find me a bit tough mm-hmm. because I do have really high standards and I really I really want them to rise to those standards. But by the time students get into VCE, I think perhaps I've got maybe all teachers are like that you know mm. as you move up you you know them differently I think yeah my year seven English students would say would describe me one way but my year 11 literature class would say something very different so and that's just in the nature of the style of teaching you have to do at those different year levels I could walk into a lit class sit in a circle with them and we just kick off naturally whereas you have to walk into a year seven class have them all stand up, greet you, sit down, discipline if needed, if they haven't got their books or they because you have to set, you know, we have to set them up mm. so that we can sit in a circle in year 11 and discuss the deep intricacies of whatever text that we're studying. Yeah. Yeah. How do mm. you ensure that students are meeting your standards at those junior year levels? That's a really good question. I really like to establish a good rapport with parents. Mm-hmm. I've always worked in independent schools so and maybe that makes it easier, I guess, that the parents are investing in their child's education and so therefore are more likely to be on board with me if I'm emailing home or getting to know them earlier. I try to make the first interaction positive if possible. Mm-hmm. And at the school I'm working at now, we're lucky we get a parent-teacher very early on in the first few weeks, which is awesome. So it's really a meet-and-greet it's an opportunity for them to tell me how, you know, anything I might might be important that I need to know to help get the best out of their child. And then it means if I'm following up on things later that they've seen my face and they, they get a vibe of who I am as an educator. But my classroom is never silent, mm. which perhaps is how I can chat with kids all the time. And I very rarely am sitting down. I noticed in lockdown 
before at school I would routinely be hitting 10,000 steps by lunchtime easy uh-huh. you know and I think mm-hmm. a lot of I don't think I don't think I'm unusual in that fact but I think when I walk into a classroom I'm circling constantly so having those conversations one-on-one if someone's not oh, natural yeah yeah very difficult to do in a zoom room although yep. breakout rooms can can be useful I think also I don't know if I'd admit to this Laura but I <laughs> I more, it's the same no one's listening. <laughs> no, no one's no one's gonna listen to this. I think I like to create positive relationships with students, with their parents, and so therefore they're motivated to want to succeed in my class because succeeding in my class has weight. Mm-hmm. So if I walk into a classroom and say I'm really disappointed, mm-hmm. every single face I want it to fall. Mm-hmm. Because I want them to feel that sense of motivation to succeed. And I'm okay with it being me, being the person that motivates them at year seven and year eight, because I'm hoping then that that becomes intrinsic motivation as they move through the school. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to like me necessarily. It's not a friend thing, but I want them to really care about getting their work in and making it the top, the top level work that it can be. Mm-hmm. And I want them to be nervous if they haven't met my standard yeah does that make sense it makes perfect sense it makes perfect sense I think that we all want those things and generate that in different ways Mm. you know for some people it can be about creating that close relationship and so they feel as though they want to invest in you Mm. and therefore the disappointment hits them hard or it could be that you know somebody who respects you so much for your intellect and your high expectations also wants to impress you in some way too. So I think that there's many ways of doing that and I completely get yeah. that that's how you do it. Do I always achieve it? No. I yeah. don't do it. <laughs> but um, I try. So I think, yeah, the kids that are especially apathetic or have really switched off, I find them the most challenging because I can't rely on my natural, the, you know, can't throw my weight around with them because they don't, they're at a point where they don't care what I think. They're the ones that I think that, that they're really tough. They are. To engage. They are. And it's interesting. I had, she's a behaviorist in the, in the America, in America. And, um, (laughs) and she's really against like reward systems and, you know, external motivations. And for the, for exactly that reason, she said the kids that tend to be at the bottom of those, you know, like click down systems and whatever are the kids that don't care are the kids that are there every lesson because the discipline doesn't work. And so, it's the same sort of thing, right? Like there's no investment. There's no skin in the game. It's Those kids are the hardest ones, even if they're not disruptive. They don't care and that's very, very yeah. hard to shift. It is. And you can, I, I feel like, I've, you know, we all have our arsenal of tricks. Like my favourite one is demanding a student go out, out of the classroom mm-hmm. when they're being especially problematic. Mm. This is actually one of my, one of the teachers at my first school, kind of based on her, her philosophy and you go out and you go out and you walk around the corner and you say, are you okay? What's mm. going on for you? Instead of, because the kid is expecting you yep. to be raging. Yep. Like, I'm really, I'm really shocked about, you know, how you're, how you're speaking in there, whatever the behavior was. Can I help? I really, you know, I really care about you. I want you to do well, all those kind of things. And then she said, you always let the student go back into the classroom first so they can moderate their like they can keep their face, I guess, mm-hmm. that you've told mm-hmm. them off. So they could walk in and roll their eyes, whatever, doesn't matter. What matters is 
that you have made it really, really clear that you care about them. And yep. slowly, 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 you might see behavioural change. I had one student I remember teaching year nine or year 10 English. We were doing animal farm mm-hmm. and I... As we all do, like you're teaching five subjects, you're teaching five separate texts simultaneously, plus mm-hmm. the ones that you may be tutoring privately. And I mixed up a character's name and in front mm-hmm. of the whole class she said, Miss, have you kind of even get the names right? How you know, what am I what are we meant to do? Kind of like throws her book. What am I meant to do? Oh right. And I was like, I Oh right. Whoa, that's not appropriate. I was like, yeah. You can step outside, thank you. So I walk out with her and I said to her, Oh, okay what's going on that was really unlike you and yeah. she burst into tears yeah. there'd been a party on the weekend and she kissed a boy and he was in that classroom and now he wasn't talking to her the, so so none of that was about me none yeah. of that it out- really is mm. it really is yeah. yeah the longer you're in teaching you realize how little to take it personally yeah, <laughs> yeah. and then so then she cried and you know you yeah. kind of stand awkwardly in the hallway and yeah yeah bless yeah that was a good one I did the same thing, actually. Yeah. No, 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 I, I didn't kiss a boy and cry. No, I am. Um, <laughs> no, I did the right same podcast thing. for that. I'm not so sure. Uh, yeah. yeah, separate podcast. Uh, no, yeah, I do the same thing. Yeah. I will firmly ask someone to stand outside for the same and exactly mm-hmm. the same thing that I often expect and I'm usually quite soft. Yeah. What's going on? This is out of character for you. What's happened? And you're right. You completely take the wind out of their sails when you do that. Yeah. And I find that they're very open very quick. Yes. Because their defences are up and you just sort of wash those away and they're like, oh. And they often take full responsibility in those moments yeah. too. <laughs> and then thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sending them out. Or yeah. sometimes there does have to be some form of discipline if your school or yes. whatever has a discipline set up. But yeah. then you have them thanking you for giving yeah. them the attention. And that's yeah. what you that's what you want because that, what they're yeah. saying is thank you for holding me to account. Thank you yes. for ensuring that my behaviour is in line with the code of conduct, thank you for teaching me something. Might not have been about the book. But also but, thank you for not humiliating me in front of my peers because that to yeah. me and that shame oh, no. doesn't help anybody. Mm-mm. No, I would be mortified if, if a student felt shame. Mm-hmm. Anything in my classroom, mm-hmm. honestly, because it just shuts them down completely. So I feel like we've already started to give some good advice to pre-service teachers yeah. regarding kind of classroom management that's a really gross strategy that I don't think anyone's mentioned on here before so Ooh. good thank you for that but oh what goodness. other advice would you like to give to people considering the profession or studying to be a teacher well I think it's not all about you is a good one I've just take just from our, from our conversation just here what's happening in the classroom what's happening with your colleagues I think sometimes when you're an early years teacher practicing teacher everything can feel very immediate and very personal mm-hmm. If you've had a bad class, you're a terrible teacher. If a kid speaks back to you, you've failed at classroom management. If you haven't got your marking done, you may as well just quit. And that that, there's that pressure and that expectation, I think, that is placed on us as educators to be kind of almost more than human. Mm, Um, 100%. Yeah, and you underestimate the fact that when you're walking into a classroom every day, you're giving so much of yourself, of your emotional self your intellectual property the decisions that you have to make in an hour-long class it's like having 
I've seen there's there's a meme where it says being a teacher is like having you know 107 Google tabs open yeah. simultaneously yeah. and you're reading all of them and you are. I think I as in when I in early years I threw my as a like I was a student I threw myself into everything. Mm-hmm. I ran the debating. I produced the productions. I agreed to teach anything. And someone said Claire, we need this to be taught, and I was like, yes, I will teach that. I was the second coming of teacher Christ. No, I th- but I think that's pretty standard. I think it is too. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to make a difference, and what I'm what I've worked out in my ripe old age of no, well, 10 years in, is I'm going to make a better difference when I get eight hours of sleep a night, when I don't do any work from four o'clock on a Friday until I try four o'clock on a Sunday. That's good. You know, just I think having a couple of days off because ultimately the students that we teach, they go through those six years and then they go off on their lives and we're still there. Mm. and as much as I appreciate us and I I have no doubt I have had wonderful students who've done amazing things and I hold them in my heart you can give everything you can give everything of yourself as a teacher I think to the detriment of yourself and your family and your relationships and then students graduate and they wave goodbye Mm. (laughs) and there you are depleted exhausted ill counting down till December whatever when we can hide in a hole for six weeks, lick our wounds and get ready for, for January 31st. It's a very more, I didn't mean to be so, I'm not trying to be negative about teaching. I love it. Yeah. It is saying goodbye to a little family that you take yeah. a whole year to create and yeah. you're like, bye. I mean, some of those awkward cousins yeah. that you're happy not to see again, but some of them are, the, are your really near and dearest that you, you kind of, you're going to miss when they go. And you do. And yeah. then if, and then you see them out in the world sometimes. Mm. and it mm-hmm. brings you joy mm. and then they go on with their lives which is right and proper it's it's like I think it's like parenting it's like gr- growing children and, and sending them off to be I did my master's in student well-being at Melbourne mm. University such a good course I don't know if they're still running it I think they are brilliant and the final project was called the self-change project and we had to do an analysis of our lives so the premise being mm. to be to be an effective you know to work in well-being you need to be strong in yourself and so I did a self-analysis and I had a very rich and wonderful life but up until five six years ago I didn't have a partner in life Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I realized in that that I was giving all of myself and all of my free time to my school Mm. as if it was my husband and children Mm. And mm-hmm. in doing that project, I it was like it was like the most incredible epiphany that I could continue down this road and I could give everything of myself to my school and I would no doubt live a wonderful life. But was that what I wanted? And I said no, that's mm. not what I wanted. And almost it's like a Hollywood movie, Laura. The partner walked in. I did that project. He made space for him. And yep. November, November that year, so I submitted yep. all that year. In walked, in walked mm-hmm. my darling husband, Elliot. My life yep. and there he was and I took a step back from all the things that I do at school and I mm. still love my job and I still am very pleased to do it and I'm looking forward to a long and illustrious career in it but I'm not as depleted or I mean sometimes I still am and remote yeah. teaching is hard but I have something yeah. else now to we took the blinkers off because I think that schools can become a vortex of commitment and work and 
even I found this year coming back after four years of maternity leave, knowing better, logically knowing mm. better, I still got sucked back into it. It's very hard. It's yeah. very hard when the rhetoric around you constantly is about what about the kids and what about your teaching and learning and coming to this meeting and, you know, when everybody around you is saying those things, it's very hard to drown that noise out. It is. I think you need you, you need to have something that almost anchors you outside of teaching, whether that's a partner, whether yeah. that's a hobby, a sport, family, just to put everything into perspective sometimes I think. I agree. It's really needed. So let's talk about mm. the joy in the job. You love the job. You've realised that you don't have to have it. a 100% investment in it but you still love it. So what's the joy? Where does it come from? The joy is in the moment there's a moment, I think, I don't know if it's in other disciplines. I know you, because you teach science as well, so maybe you might, you might be able to answer this, but there's that moment, an aha, when something that you're explaining to students, a concept, an idea, hits them mm. and they realise. It happens in science too. We teach it does, yeah. science as well, yeah. Like we teach Murder on the Orient Express at Year 7, Big test to teach year seven. A, we do. Okay. Yeah. It works because there's short chapters and there's like because it's Agatha Christie, there's things you can just gloss over because what's really important, you know what's really important at the end. It works. But there's this moment in the final chapter where, spoiler alert for everyone, sorry, Poirot reveals that actually all the passengers on the train were the ones who murdered Ratchet. We've spent the whole book, like a whole term of teaching, and I have now this is the second year I'm teaching it where the kids kind of just stop and go, oh. And then you see their, they see their brains going and, then, oh, so then that happened and, then when, and, that, and, that, was, and that didn't matter and that did, And mm. it's just the coolest feeling because I feel like it's an opportunity. We get to again and again present students with, an, with opportunities for revelation and each revelation we provide them with, whether it's who was the murderer in To Kill a Mockingbird or whether it was the reality of our past and the massacres of Indigenous people mm-hmm. in the seven stages of grieving, each revelation you know fundamentally mm-hmm. will stay with them for their whole life. It won't. Mm-hmm. The content won't be there necessarily. They're not necessarily going to remember, but but that realisation, that aha, that we teach them something about the world, I think. Yeah. And that's why you do it. That's why you mark hundreds of essays and you read and you prep and you think of different ways and approaches to teach students things and you stay up all night all night composing emails in your heads to parents or because what matters is I think that as all those students who like go through their lives they're at school and eventually wave goodbye to us so that we wave goodbye to them knowing that they're Mm. equipped and prepared to take on this increasingly Mm -hmm. bizarre world that we live in at least we hope, or at least more prepared than they were when they came in. A hundred percent. I agree with you. I'm now at the mm. stage with my year 12s that they're starting to say to me, could you think of it like this? This is my favorite yes. part and it always takes until term three. Term one and two, they're kind of learning to feel safe and comfortable with you. They're learning how, how yes. much you kind of know. And by term three is when they start to feel like, could you look at it this way? Or have you thought of it like this and it's my favourite time of the year in year 12? But I'm like, 100% you could. Or I've never thought about it like that way. And it's a real conversation and back and forth and it's not me at the front of the room giving everything. It's actually 
yeah. communicative and it's I love that and I'm at that stage now yeah yes I, it's, mm-hmm. it's the best feeling so I think at the start of the year when you if you break down a symbolic element or you know especially I teach I've got year 10 boys this year and they kind of roll mm-hmm. their eyes a little bit at me when I'm trying to explain symbolism or different interpretations of a text or how we might view a text in have you seen that meme where it's like the curtains are blue, the curtains are blue. Yeah. If anyone that's haven't heard, seen this meme, it's the curtains are blue, which represents sadness and sorrow, and there's the light that represents hope and blah, blah, blah. And then on the other side of the meme, it's like, no, the curtains are blue. Just- the English teacher seeing all of this, you know, symbolism, and the writer's like, the curtains are blue. Yeah. And so I have one student in my year 12 class who's constantly like, miss, the curtains are just blue. Yeah. They're just blue. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, the boys sometimes they're like, the curtains are just blue. <laughs> I sometimes say, or actually I say sometimes, often will say, tell me if I'm, tell me if this is a stretch, guys, but this is yeah, what yeah. I'm thinking. And then I let them say, no, too much of a stretch. Or sometimes I'll go, oh, no, I can see how you stretched there. So this idea that like perceiving texts in different ways is a bit uncomfortable you have to stretch to it you know and get around things and and also pitch things I pitch things in the classroom all the time and they all roll their eyes at me and go no I'm like okay yeah that's fine yeah that's so I'm so similar yeah I'm so similar like I was doing rewindow this year and there was something that I'd read and I can't for the life of me can't remember now I said I've read this what do you guys think they're like no I'm like, okay, no worries. Or oh, there was something about the red light representing communism in the in the hallway. Yes. I've read this, yeah. right? And I said to them, I've read this. One or two of them used it in their essay and felt really confident and comfortable with it. A lot of them were like, I couldn't use it. I said, and that's the thing. Cool. You, if you find something in, in the text that you can analyse and discuss really, really well, it doesn't matter if I've thought about it. It doesn't matter if it's in a study guide or not. Mm. Do it. Do it. If you can really talk about that and analyze that, go for it. But if there's something also on the flip side, if there's something you've seen in a study guide and you're like, I don't see that, then please don't use it because it'll never come off in your essay. No, I cannot agree more. Cannot agree more. I think that's what we want to do ultimately is empower students to approach a text and have strategies and skills to break it down and to work out what their personal perspective on it is. Because it's going to be different to what ours is because we are, I'm, I'm talking about even like we as in you and I. Mm-hmm. Um, not, no, <laughs> we're, but we're not 17. No, no, we're, we're not. We've had children, we've mm-hmm. travelled, we've had university, you know, been through university degrees, we've taught, we've read a whole, I want to use the word, oeuvre of books, you know, mm-hmm. around oh. those texts that inform our perspective on it. So it makes sense that our worldview on a text is going to be starkly different to that of a 17-year-old, but that doesn't mean that someone who is 16 or 17 or 18 or 19, I don't know how old they are, that age, that their perspective isn't important and isn't 100%, yeah. valid because of their life experiences. Um, yeah, and I want, I want students to feel empowered about that. I want them to feel that... They don't have to just read it. This is what the study guide said and so that is the one meaning of this. Otherwise, we would not have any innovation in this world. We mm. just all agree with the dictionary. The thing is too is that it's so exciting to me that they see the world in a completely different way to me and it's a way that I can never see it again. Like I can kind of remember what that was like but I also was living in a different time. Mm. 
you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to, to know how they see it. I, I, I can't ever see it like that being, you know, the age that I am having had the experiences that I've had. So I want to know yeah. what they think. And also I'm a bit jealous that they get to read texts for the first time. Yeah. That they get to go through and navigate it and have all the twists and the turns, especially of classics that we've read and taught for 10 years, to be able to do that fresh for the first time and have that experience, that's, yeah, that's exciting, I think. I think that about sometimes just the place they are in their life. Yeah. Like I think about your 20s is like that kind of muddling through and trying to work it all out. Like I've made those big decisions already. Yeah. I've had those big experiences already in terms of solidifying the things in my life that will now be the bedrock of of where I move forward. They haven't had those yet. No. And I think that's super exciting too. I'm like, it's just the beginning. You don't even know what's going to come for you. And it's, that's liberating and exciting. And sometimes I think, God, I wish I could do that again. Yeah. I wish I could have that time again, you okay. know. Are we romanticising that time? True. Because the crippling true. anxiety <laughs> of year 12, I remember that quite vividly. <laughs> yeah. But but I but I hear what you're saying and that it is incredibly exciting for them that yeah especially this world that our current year 12s or even current high school students generally are graduating into I mean yes obviously I have I feel for them with lockdown and remote learning yeah, it's, not it's not it's not great and listen we could have an entire podcast on why it's not great mm-hmm. but what has happened is I think we've jumped forward and this is what happens in time of conflict I was talking about this in one of one of the chats I'm in somewhere, if you look at <laughs> if you look at the times of great conflict throughout history, there's always as a result innovation. Mm, always, yeah. And we jump forward, and I feel confident to say that we've jumped forward a decade in education in the last twelve to eighteen months. I don't think I would be a podcaster, or mm-hmm. I don't think I would do it. I don't think we would be doing anywhere near the remote instruction that we're doing if it wasn't for COVID. And so as a result of that innovation, there are going to be opportunities for students graduating that were not possibilities pre-COVID. I want to challenge you on that. Can I challenge you a little bit? Please. (laughs) I'm an idealist. I'm like, it's all so beautiful and we can all learn on the internet. But go, please. I think you're right in that there has been a mass uptake of technology that there have been many, many educators for many years resistant to do and they've had to do it. And so I think in terms of that, you're correct in that we've had to learn these, the the myriad of resources, platforms, apps, whatever, in order to do what we can. But the curriculum hasn't shifted. And so once we catch the curriculum up with what we can do with the technology, then I think we're there. Do you think we have an opportunity with the VC English curriculum currently being rewritten? I I think it's mostly locked in, but there are going to be some changes. I hope so. Mm. I hope so. I do know someone who is in those discussions and I think she's incredible and innovative, so I'm hopeful, very hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited that there's going to be no, I'm not excited there's going to be less focus on text. I'm, I love text analysis, but I'm excited about the fact that I think, as far as I understand it, the VCE curriculum will be focusing also on real writing, authentic writing styles that are useful and transferable post-secondary. That I think is very much is missing in the current, you know, even in, in 
literature, there's there's no, I mean, there's the creative response, but the rest of it's text analysis or critical analysis. And then in English, there's kind of no, if you think about what communication, what writing is, what we're doing right now, what we do as bloggers, as writing Instagram posts and is that what we call, was that copy, you know, writing copy, we have to teach ourselves but that's what communications is and if you like english and you're a good writer that's the sort of domain that you can percent yeah you will not be writing analyses of rear window you'll be using the same skills yeah i think of text analysis on the assumption that all anything that communicates something is a text but yeah i'm a bit excited about that i just think there's more scope for student choice in the lower year levels and i'd like to see that become more mainstream or whether or not I don't know timetabling would be a nightmare but it would be amazing to have teachers choose two of their favorite texts plus a genre that they love and kids can sign up for that rather than having to be told what to do well yeah well you know I've, I've had conversations with um, teachers in the past about especially year 10 English I think it's a really interesting year level often you know year nine we do exciting fun things off campus and go and climb mountains and you know yeah cool okay. yeah that kind of stuff yeah. like year nine's like the trouble year so you know send them off, get them off campus what do you think well, I think it's year eight now oh yeah year eight's problematic I think year um, eight is worse than year nine now but that's yeah depends yeah it depends but they're kind of too young to yeah well that's right to do it yeah but year 10 off almost becomes like this pre-VCE, mini-VCE, so, yeah, yeah. you know, everything's scaffolded. But I've had conversations with um, people for about a year 10 English where imagine students could opt into like streams. So say you are more, you really like science, so you're, gonna, you're going to go on and do bio and chem and that's your thing. And English teachers could choose texts that mm-hmm. are, you know, maybe a bit more sciencey in nature, you know, that would interest a science style student or if you had students who really wanted the literature stream you could go and do a full classic set or maybe there's you know you could I don't know how many you would have but it's always the timetabling that makes it so timetabling yep but online teaching that's right with flipped content you know maybe there's some period students are working independently through a flipped course and then there's two teacher-led online sessions a week and one, I don't know, like remember at uni you could just make, drop in to see your yeah. professor. You'd make an appointment for 15 minutes because they'd yep. have like, office hours. Mm-hmm. And suddenly mm-hmm. the, all of those problems are, are negated. So I've had a conversation and I don't feel like I recorded. I feel like it was one of those conversations I continued to have once I'd stopped recording yes. with yeah. someone regarding actually having a day like a Wednesday or something that is actually a remote day kids turn up and their teachers are available they have to make appointments if they Mm -hmm. want to see them one-on-one otherwise the work is there and available to them so teachers are at their desk available if they would like but they're also they're prepping they're also they're able to have meetings they're also they're able to have like collaborative discussions with their other staff and colleagues Mm -hmm. and kids are actually developing that independence it does help with the timetabling this is what I mean like we have it all there it Mm. could happen but we need to be ready to let go of the control and go could school look different could mainstream school look different yeah 
And I think there's been moves towards it. If you think about, I'm not sure I name the school right, but Eltham College who did, you know, they they had no classrooms. They had mm-hmm. Eltham. I don't know about this, but yeah. Someone is going to comment. It wasn't this school, Claire, or was that one? There are some schools. <laughs> please tell us. Please tell yeah, us if please, we're getting it wrong. Please tell us. There's some schools yeah. in, in Melbourne who have done, you know, no classroom, no classrooms, like big open plan learning spaces with multiple classes happening and teachers kind of maybe, I don't know if they're on with, they might be with their particular class or they might be circulating or team teaching. You know, we've played with that idea of, you know, breaking down the barriers of the classroom. I did a an elective review or completed, I did. I should have better verbs than that, Laura. I completed an elective <laughs> review last year in the depths of COVID we uh, yeah. used a fantastic book that I now have at school and it's called Bold Moves for Educators uh-huh. and it's based on, quite, well, there's a range of things it talks about, but one of the thing I, I used or the element I used was quest-based learning. So the premise is that students, we've got an elective called Power of Words and mm-hmm. students will select something in the world that they feel important that is important to them. It can be anything that they like. I, you know, we'd like it to be in the outside of their personal environment. You want it to be in the news. And then they decide, you know, what their topic or their theme is going to be. They decide what method they would like to produce their understanding. And we built an entire flipped, it was so much work, course where basically yeah. you could say, I want to write, I'm going to make, I'm going to be a podcaster. And so you can click on podcasting and learn how to be a podcaster. If you want to be a, do a radio play, you click on that and you go that way. If you want to write a narrative, you click on that, you go that way. And the next layer of it, which we never quite got to, was to then align teachers around our school who had particular passions, who were happy to be contacted by students in this class to meet with them and talk about, you get in your drama teachers who could talk about the dramatic elements you there was filmmaking everything playwriting script everything you could every mode of english we could think of and that's run this year to to success like with to success but what it means is that the teacher in the classroom is no longer a teacher they are a facilitator which is incredibly challenging because you don't have any control but i think about the learning for the students and that's, listen, this is just year eight. It's a select, you know, a, an elective subject at year eight. Yeah. It's not taking over the world yet, but. But you're putting your feet on the ground with it though. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Which I think is is better than a lot of the conversations that we have, which is, yeah, it would be nice. It would be nice. But the timetable. Oh, yes, it would be nice, but we, we don't have the money to, to do that. Yeah. Or, you know, so at least you are creating and putting it into motion that's big in education it takes a long time to do that often it it does and it's a a huge tribute to my team because I said who would like to be part of this I need it needs to be more than just me I can't I knew I couldn't do it alone and I probably had six or eight teachers who wouldn't necessarily be teaching the elective wouldn't necessarily even be teaching your eight who said I have a passion for insert this style of writing or communicating so I had, you know, drama teachers, film teachers, and we all worked together on this one on this one course. And it's still it's a work in progress. It's not perfect yet. Yeah. But the next level would to be get industry experts, and then you know, in my head, I imagined a 
kind of TED Talk style event where all students could get up and present, but then COVID. So, and then COVID continues. Um, we could do that. But one. as you said, could it be a virtual, could it be a virtual presentation? You know, how many TED, I have never been to a TED Talk and yet I've seen many online. So true. So true. So yeah, we could do something. It would be incredible to do something. Maybe I'm going to put it on my list of to-dos. Let me know how that goes. That sounds so exciting. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I don't even know what you asked me. I can't, did we answer the question? We were talking about the love and the joy and we've kind of moved in and it's, but the thing is like I hear facilitator and that's exciting to me. Mm. My need for control is gone. Yeah. I don't have that need for control anymore. I want to see my kids excited, empowered, impassioned. I want them to come to me and go, what do you think? Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. my year 12s, could we look at it this way? I'm like, yes. yes. I get the need for control, especially in those early years, yeah. but that's not something that's important to me. And I don't, well, for me, and as I said, it's not, it's not shade on anyone that likes to have it all together because I know that there's lots of teachers that do. But that for me, I would love to do something like that. That sounds so amazing. You should pitch it at your school. This, honestly, this is, I think, this is the thing I've also realised mm-hmm. in my many years of teaching. <laughs> you kill me because I've taught longer than you, Claire. So every time we say I'm it, kind of, I I'm sorry, I'm kind of <laughs> sassing myself because I don't think I've been teaching a particularly long time, which is why I'm not so sure that I have any right to even be saying this. But I really feel that if you have an idea about something in education and you can find a space for it to be mm. that's kind of a soft fail you know area so an elective subject where it's you might not have you know 20 kids in or 30 kids in the classroom you might only have 10 or 15 and you might only need one teacher to teach it and that teacher could be you it isn't actually me incidentally but it could be you so you could kind of watch it crash and burn on your own is a really great place to try that out you know don't walk into the year 12 english meeting and say yeah. we should yeah. change the way we do sex yeah. no that's not gonna that's not yeah. gonna work but if you can yeah, yeah. find a niche find a place that you that you could try and trial try i keep somebody try try but you could trial something yeah. then what you do then ready is you you write an article about it and you send it to somewhere like idiom or whoever you know a local your local um your discipline specific journal or there's lots of places would publish, you know, would publish. There's lots of online blogs. There's podcasters who'd hear about it, and then you show your principal, and they think this is awesome. You know what, Claire? We're going to get to it later. But you are like an innate hustler. Yeah, getting to it later. I'm going to ask about the side hustle, but I, but all of that thing, I'm like, that's who you are. You are an education hustler, and you're just, I love it. I love that. <laughs> Thank you, sir. It's very kind, but I just. <laughs> I, I want to pitch know. the fact that I don't mean like that Jennifer Lopez movie hustler. I mean like, you know, someone getting the ball rolling and moving ahead. It's good. Get things done. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I want to hear because you have an amazing podcast, Teachers Talk Texts, which is hard to say. It is. I didn't it looked good on the page. No, I and then, yeah. I've never said it out loud. Yeah, it's hard to say. But anyway, love it. I want to hear about the fa- your favorite texts to teach because ultimately you're talking about texts that you don't teach so you have to learn about so um, you obviously all over so many of them what are some of the favorites that you've ever taught that I've actually taught in the classroom I think one of my favorite texts to actually teach is Fly Away Peter Mm -hmm. by uh, Maloof 
David Malouf. Why? I, I taught it at literature, year 11 literature. I inherited it from the previous literature teacher when I took on year 11 for the first time and it was I, I got given the class too late to change the book list. You know when that happens? Yeah, yeah. And so there it was. And we did a kind of term 1A or, t- you know, early commencement style thing and I introduced them to Maloof generally and to World War One, and it's a story of a, a man who um, likes, basically likes birds and goes to war. That's the very pre- the premise of it. And students, I said, you read it over the summer and come back and we'll start talking about it. And I think I had maybe 11 or 12 students in that literature class and they all came back in and were like, we don't understand this text. What is happening? Oh, my goodness. And I was a bit overwhelmed by that. I remember thinking, oh, they don't even understand. They don't even get it. So we started teaching it, started breaking it down, and it's one of those texts with the most incredible aha moments in it because students ultimately understand that, and Malouf says this, he doesn't write for a plot. He likes character and character development, but he, he writes to convey a meaning, and his ultimate meaning is that life is meaningless mm. and that the inherent meaning to which we ascribe to it and there's a few key scenes where there's a lot of birds and a lot of rats and so my students went from going oh this this book about the birds and the rats to the most intense and incredible discussions about how Maloof constructs meaning and how he uses symbolism and because it's a short text you can spend more time discussing it you're not kind of wading through I think that was when I first, I started teaching literature quite early, maybe year three or year four. Before I taught VCE English, I taught VCE literature because the opportunity was there and I discovered the aha moment there. I feel like I haven't even given, I have not, I have not described that well. It's something indescribable about that text. If you have a read, any English teachers who are listening, if you haven't, it's beautiful. And Malouf's on the text list now with Ransom. I really enjoy Ransom. Ransom. With the Queen, isn't it? With the Queen, yes. Mm. And there's elements that are similar in, well, Ransom's probably a more structured text, but he writes these long, unwieldy sentences with billions of commas and then the next paragraph, every sentence will have three words. And to have that discussion with students, that that's a purposeful, that's something that he does, yeah, he does purposefully for effect. And, yeah, he uses just beautiful, beautiful description and imagery and... And it ultimately opens up a really interesting discussion about what is life. That's what teaching English is about, really. Every time we walk into a classroom, we're, we're exploring an element of why life is meaningful. On the Year 12 list, though, gosh, there's so many good ones. I love Women of Troy. We've yeah, talked about Women of we've Troy. We've talked about Women of Troy. And it was so interesting. That was one of the ones that's coming up at our year 11 meeting, we're trying to work out new texts and someone straight away said, oh, I couldn't possibly do Women of Troy. And I'm like, I, and I just sat there quietly like, I love Women of Troy. But I've never taught it. I've only ever cheated it. I've never actually had a class of it. No, I've only ever. I've talked about it twice on podcasts. Mm -hmm. I've not thought. That's great. Yeah, I love it. I've cheated it. I've written about it. I've lectured about it, but I haven't taught it. But I did Mm -hmm. teach Medea, or Medea, Medea, I don't know how you say it, and I loved loved teaching I think I just I really like the ancient Greeks I really like Shakespeare I'm a huge Shakespeare fan I love Much Ado About Nothing it's a really uh, it's a really gritty text to be teaching its representation of women and the realities for women I think Shakespeare was you know quite ahead of his time in 
the depiction of that, that scene where Claudio just casts Hero off. Gosh. And and having that discussion with students too, I actually taught much ado at year nine a few years ago. And it was a challenging conversation to have with the year nine boys as well. I always have these texts with boys about the nuances of that scene and why he was throwing her away. What had she done yeah. that was so terrible? She hadn't done anything. She was innocent, Laura. Mm. But oh, there's so many good texts. This so, I can't even. I can't. I can't tell you. I can't. <laughs> I can't. You. They're like my baby. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that that sometimes, in a way, that's to our detriment because we do have these affiliations with texts that we want to see. Like Medea, I did that in Year Twelve and loved it. We did it at our school. Fell so flat. They hated it. Hated it. Hated it. And so we're in the midst of those conversations now about the fact that. It's not really about us. No, it's if not. If it's falling flat, if the kids don't like it, we can't hold on to it. We've got to move through it and we've got to realise that, you know, this is not the time for it. It may, it may come back another time. And we were having this conversation off recording is you have to try and meet the kids halfway. You can't make it all about you as a teacher. No. And I think that's where English teaching almost gets a bad rap is that the stereotype of the teacher at the front of the classroom and I don't mean to offend anyone in saying this, but I talk about this a lot with my team, my department, with the, you know, the book open and all the highlights in your book and then the kids are sitting there with their books open and they've got a highlighter in their hand and you're reading and you say, now highlight this, children, highlight this sentence. This is what this sentence means. And to a certain extent, that's how I was taught English. So it, there is merit to it. But it, I think it's only a very small subset of your class who is going to get the benefit of that sort of teaching. I've never taught like that. And there was a part of me that was embarrassed that I didn't because the very, very sort of top, more experienced teachers that I worked with did. And I thought, am I missing something? And I don't say it like I thought I shouldn't do it. I just never felt as though that made sense to me as a teacher. Mm. So I didn't do it. But I also thought there was that was because there was something missing in me that I didn't get yeah. because they stood by that type of teaching and some kids loved it. Yeah. But I could never do it. No, I don't. I don't. I think up until last year when we were online, I could say hand on heart, I have never read a book out loud to students or, mm-hmm. you know, like that. But that I did somewhat I'm somewhat embarrassed about it but it got it got real tough there in third term of course teaching year seven and we did a lot of reading out loud and and me saying this is an important quote and why do we at least ask like why do we think that is or would you like to add that to your quote list but before that I hadn't I'm more interested in what the students think I'm more interested in providing them opportunities whether it's excerpts or you know, exciting graphic organisers and getting them to dive into the text and tell me what what evidence they're interested in because like, it comes back to what we were talking about before with their worldview. They're going to pick up on a completely different quote that I would never have used but they're probably going to analyse it better than the one that I've picked out for them and told them what it means. And also I don't want to read multiple essays of my own analysis. I cannot imagine anything more boring. I listen to myself talk all day. That's exactly right. Yeah, well, so that's the thing. I would do like a bookmark yes. for them that has got key themes and, and messaging yeah. and things like that and go, we'll have this with you, knowing that these are the kind of big things that we're looking for and you show yeah. me yeah. how you see that theme. 
I'm with you though. I'm reading at the moment. I've come back to reading. I was setting them tasks of going off to read and, and, you know, bring things back to me. I have some little Google forms and stuff. I'm back to reading with them now because I think it feels safe for them at the moment. It's too much kind of off you go. I read one chapter and then they have to read one on their own. And I think in a way it's really grounding. Yeah. I'm back to doing that remotely now. I think online it's, I feel like, everything about my practice had to change yeah because if you if you had set that activity up with you know group work and go after this chapter off you go everyone into their groups and you maybe got them to move their desks into little huddles and then you would then be circulating with them and listening into their conversations and going oh actually you know asking questions or redirecting or making sure everyone was participating and in breakout rooms or whatever you're using in whatever webex google meets whatever mm-hmm. possible to do that because i you know i find i say everyone has to have their cameras on and we have a shared one note collaboration space and and i'll go in there and one kid's done all the work and everyone else has got their cameras off and they don't respond to me and i think oh so Yes, online, different, different. I think we do what we need to do to support the kids to get through this. Let's talk about mm. your decision to create your own podcast mm. of Teachers Talk Texts. I'm going to say that properly. Teachers Why? Why? Um, yeah. I was working at the school that I went to, we established, and I taught there for nearly a decade and I loved it and adored it. I had a baby and I was on maternity leave and a job opportunity came up at another school to be a head of department. And I did not think that I was capable of doing that, especially coming back on maternity leave. But the deputy principal at the school that I work at now is an incredible woman. She is my age and she's a deputy principal. And she was so inspiring. And she met with me and Matilda, my daughter, and the pram and I literally took my child into this school and toured it um, and met with the principal and, you know, it was just I really felt like it was a good move for me, mm-hmm. a challenge. And she had said to me, you don't move into a role that you know you can do. You need to move into a role that you know you can grow into. It's mm, good advice. Yeah, because I think, and especially as women, I think we want to make sure that we check every box on that application before we even consider putting it in. Absolutely, that sense yeah. of imposter syndrome but actually yeah there's no point moving and it makes sense now like if you are already doing all of those things you're not going to be enriched by a position of leadership in a school that you're just doing the same things you want to learn and grow so I took the plunge and I resigned from my job which was very difficult because yeah the principal there you know he taught me and then kind of guided me for a decade and I went in and res- and handed in my resignation in person with a baby in my arms you know and but yeah he was really good he just said is this what you this is what you want then go you know yeah wasn't happy about it but go <laughs> um so I went this is, this is I promise this is all relevant I went and I started in you know in January with an eight-month-old baby hats off to I, you Claire seriously hats off to you I'm not going to lie, I didn't love maternity leave. I was very bored. Yeah, yeah. I'm a much better mum for working the way I do. Yeah. And I think I know a lot of, I think there's a lot of women who are like that. But the school I, work, uh, school I moved into was incredible because I said to them, you know, I'm going to come back, I'm, I'm breastfeeding, I need 
um, lactation rooms and it's a multi-campus school and I was traveling across campuses and so I was asking for multiple rooms at multiple places you know and they were just like it was like absolutely absolutely of course you must you must have this you must have this time is blocked into your day like it was they were just it, I was blown away by the support can I say there's two things yeah. in that first of all that you got the support but second that you asked I think a lot of women feel like they can't ask we, yeah and I was and nervous. I think that, that is really important you can ask yeah. for those things and actually yes. you're legally entitled to it as well so as a as a returning mum if you're wanting to express you're allowed to do that so and yeah it's it's illegal for them to not to not provide it for you you shouldn't be doing it in mm. the toilet basically mm-hmm. so mm. I had beautiful rooms with a fridge and a nice couch and block out blinds and a locked door and because I wasn't teaching I mean in some ways a full-time load too because my POR had time release that was in yeah. like rather than going back to a full-time load I don't know when I I don't know if I would have been able to manage it but anyway that's another conversation mm-hmm. and then I worked on campus for what seven weeks term one and we went into lockdown and so I was working from home and incredibly supported but I felt really isolated and I missed teaching VCE which I don't teach at the moment I really missed it I didn't feel I had a connection with colleagues because I hadn't made the new connections as a as a friend yet at my new place of work I was still the boss the new boss coming in so people were not you know, I was still meeting people for the first time on Zoom and, yeah, it wasn't great. And I had been talking with an old colleague about we'd always said the conversations that you have in the staff room, you're just sitting there talking about a text or going, oh, what do you think about this essay topic or whatever, and you have that conversation and we go, oh, I wish we'd recorded that. The kids would love that. That would have been, that would be awesome. Yeah, we talk about that all the time in our faculty meetings. Yeah, those conversations, those incidental conversations when teachers have with another teacher when they're not trying to teach anyone, they're not trying to get it to a certain level, they're not trying to, they're just talking as authentic human beings and lovers of literature. And so I contacted the head of English at my previous school and this friend because we'd all worked together and I said to them, I want to do this thing and I don't know if it's going to work but would you, would you do this thing with me? And they were both like, yes, absolutely, we'd love to. And so Philip and Lauren were my first guests and I met them on Zoom and I was so nervous. I didn't even know what it would be like. I didn't even know what I was, I just didn't, but I thought I'd read uh, Buzzsprout's Guide to Podcasting. (laughs) I think I read that too. And one of the things they say is just do it. Just give it a go. The worst that can happen is it doesn't work and you don't publish it. But it worked. It worked. And the way that I the way that I intrinsically naturally led that conversation, which was to ask, why do you love this text? Have a conversation and then end with, why is this text important? Why do we teach it? Has become the structure and the skeleton of the, I don't even know how many conversations I've had now, um, 20-odd conversations I've had since. Mm-hmm. And it's still the questions I sent to Lauren and Philip on that first day are the, still the questions I sent to every guest. Mm. And it was brilliant and I loved it. I just loved it straight away, like being a teacher. Like, you know when you walk into the classroom for the first time and you're like, yes, this is my home, this is where I'm, this is, I'm, I'm like, I think I can do this. Mm. I felt that way about podcasting. Then I got into editing and audacity and I was like, mm, that's a- <laughs> Yes, we've had a conversation about this up here too. <laughs> that's right. The editing. And the thing, you know, the thing is it's funny and this is, it's, it's, there's a bit of an allusion here to teaching as well. It costs me money to run my podcast. Mm. Yeah. 
luckily I also I have my own business and so I run it as an expense through the business so that my my husband isn't like what is D script what is <laughs> sprout <laughs> somewhere else yeah, somewhere yeah. else um, in the business account yeah. yeah it costs me money but I still I just love it and the people like look yeah. we met and I would never have yeah. met you if we didn't do this and not just that like I wouldn't hear about the exciting things you're doing at Mm -hmm. your school I I wouldn't be inspired by your way of teaching and that's what teaching is about to me sharing yeah and it can be a very isolating job because it's your schedule and your classes and your classroom and the door is shut and it's Mm -hmm. you and your kids and when you have those conversations in the staff room that's when you can kind of come alive and relive it and reflect. And it's, it's, yeah, it's amazing. The colleagues are almost some of the best, not almost, they are some of the best parts of the, of the job. And so now I feel like I've got extended colleagues. Yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. And I think sometimes education gets a little bit competitive too. Like it gets a bit like I am the most brilliant teacher, you know, versus I am the most brilliant. Who is the most brilliant teacher? Not, no, none of us are. You know, we are all working, I, th- I think. I mean, some people are brilliant. No, don't. That, that kind of came out the wrong way. What I'm saying is we can always we learn more. We haven't all got it figured out. Like we can mm-hmm. 100% learn from somebody else. 100%. Yes. yes. I And I have had moments on the aha moments on the podcast where I, and I edit it out now, where I'm like, whoa, <laughs> what? That's yeah. incredible. I never, I, I have taught this text for years. I have, you know, some texts that are on the year 12 list, have been around they've been doing the traps for a while you know and I'm just so blown away by people's interpretations and it just makes me a better person it makes me a better human being having listened to them and I also hoped I think that because of lockdown and because students were I you know I, I knew they were struggling there were kids I was tutoring who were really finding it tricky last year we didn't have it all sorted there were some kids no. I was tutoring that weren't getting any face-to-face with their teachers and I imagined that maybe some students might listen to the podcast and get some ideas that would help them in their exam. Yes, I think that they – well, I need to say too, I listened to – because we're doing Seven Stages of Grieving in the Longest Memory and I remember listening to that and there was a conversation about do you think it's important that – well, obviously in the Seven Stages of Grieving it's a woman. Yes. And that the most progressive voice in the Longest Memory is a woman. Mm-hmm. How impactful is that? And I brought that up at a faculty meeting and some teachers were teaching that yeah. and other teachers hadn't considered it yeah so and that was directly from your podcast so oh. there you go yeah it's some pretty insight I think and I think also and the same I mean I did the same to you with coming on this I said I don't think I have anything to say but it turns out I do um yeah and people will say that to me about the texts and say oh I don't have I don't I'm just a little old me in my classroom and I said yes I want to know what you you don't have to be a published author. You know, you are on the ground every day having conversations with your students about these texts. Come on and chat to me about them. I'd love, mm-hmm. um, you know. And if you say anything silly, I just edit it out. It's usually. <laughs> yes, it's usually exactly. Saying silly things in all honesty or asking bizarre questions that don't make sense. Yeah, I do that. And then I go, oh, no, actually I don't like that question. Scrap it. Move on. You know, mm-hmm. it's all part of the process. 100%. Mm. So you're talking about business. I was mentioning the hustle. Tell me about the hustle. What else are you doing outside of all of the... And also, I need to clarify, what is your actual job at the moment? What is the role that you've got? The... At the moment, in, in at my school, mm, like a I'm, leadership role. 
I'm the head of English in the middle school. So I head up the years five to eight English program, which is awesome actually because coming back after a baby, I don't have the marking load that I did. But I, I came from teaching kind of 12 English, 11 English, 11 lit, and then a sprinkling of, you know, other things. Mm-hmm. and teaching yeah full time in the classroom and I was looking at going back to that too so it has been kind of a blessing to take on this leadership role it is obviously like probably workload wise more it's different it's different um workload I'm I feel very incredibly lucky though because I can choose kind of sometimes when I work so we're all locked down for the next couple of weeks and there's no childcare so if I if I have to look after my child in the middle of the school day and I'm not teaching, I feel like I can do that and then do my work later, yep. which is not great for my mental health because we shouldn't be working at 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night, but I can. I have that yep. flexibility. And I also just really enjoy, I really enjoy looking at a department widely and thinking about what we're doing that's really awesome and areas we can improve and then going and finding ways to improve it. I just, it's like having one great big class kind of diagnosing that in the same way you would a classroom I think leading a department is your not that your team become your students but I think I I you you really are almost like a facilitator in that elective you were just talking about yeah aren't you yeah and people come to you and say Claire I've got this idea I really want to do this this is the thing I didn't realize either about this job when I first came into it I said to my boss head of teaching and learning, I get nothing done. All whole days go by and I do nothing. And she said, oh, no, no, stop, tell me about today. And I was yeah. like, well, I did a Zoom with this person and then this person called and then I had to, you know, and then I had to deal with that parent and then there was this. And she said, don't you realise that what you all you've done all day is facilitate every yeah. other person who's come to you to go and do something. Yeah. You are now the, you are the kind of, there's a word for it, I'm doing it with my hands. You know, you are the funnel through yes. which lots of different people's work goes. So you could have an entire day where you don't feel like you've actioned anything on your to-do list, but you have made how you know, end times, what I'm not a math teacher, but how many people you've met with times yeah. that happen. And that was... But that's real leadership though, Claire. Well, yeah. yeah that's what leadership actually is. And it's, it's kind of exciting. But also yeah. you have to sometimes give up you don't get to do everything. Mm. So you have a cool idea and you kind of have to hand it over to someone and say, hey, I've got this idea about doing this. At the moment we're looking to rework our rubrics, text response, starting with that, to be more skills-based, yeah. not, you know, when you have a sophisticated understanding of the, of you know, of the text. And what you go, what does that, that What is yeah. it? What is it? English, English rubrics are so vague. So vague and so, like, I find because we do verification where, you know, we all cross-mark each other's essays and we have the same mark and yet we've marked it in the rubric slightly differently because every single part is open to interpretation. It's like I knew that it was a B plus. Yeah. I just kind of got there a different way and that's the problem with English rubrics I find. So hard. I went to a PD and I, it was the head of English from uni high led Mm -hmm. a data analysis session and she was talking about the fact that text response rubrics are 
you know, we have NAPLAN data, PISA data, this data, that data, but it's not really useful to us in the classroom. What's really useful is the data we get from the rubrics that we use to diagnose areas of improvement for our students. And she showed us how she had converted the VCE or some of the VCE, you know, the VCE rubrics are the same, you know, to vague. Yes. They've yep. converted them to skills. So, you know, they're cool. paraphrases evidence includes a quotation, embeds quotation, weaves quotation, you know, so it's all incremental in skills. So we're trialling that um, at one year level at year five at the moment because they do a little bit of text response, a little bit of a little bit of a write. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're doing lots of really cool stuff, actually. Like I've got all these, like, you know, I feel like I just talk for ages, but, you know, just little. <laughs> I had um, nothing to say, Laura. I don't know what I'd say. No, I don't. <laughs> we're on an hour and 15 minutes left. <laughs> You're going to have to cut it down. Yeah, I think it's cool and I get to just like dip into that project and be like, hey, what's happening here? Fill me in. And then someone gets really excited and passionate and tells me all about it. I'm like, this is awesome. What do you need from me? And they say, nothing. See you in a week. See you in a month. And I'm like, bye. Yeah. I really love that. I really, I didn't realise I'd love it so much. What I don't love is that I don't always feel as prepared for my classes as I would like to because your teaching sometimes can fall to the wayside when there's so many other things that are pressing you have to really dedicate time to prepping for your classes and the same way that you would without a position of responsibility I think but yes yeah I understand that look I feel that way coming back after maternity leave oh I would have spent four hours prepping for my classes the next day and I might have 45 minutes (laughs) to prep and I'm like well just gonna run with that then (laughs) Let's write a paragraph on the board, everyone. Yeah. Hard and true. Yeah. Hard and true. Oh, no. We still haven't yeah. gotten to your hustles. We haven't still oh, hustles, what you're doing outside, outside of your job. Outside of my job. So besides my job, I have and always tutored. I've done the podcast. I have always tutored since I was at uni. I've loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just really enjoyed it. Used to be for a bit of extra cash when, mm-hmm. you know, early years teaching. I mean, the pay's not bad, but, you know, if you're tutoring a couple of students in the week, it gives you, you know, a bit of extra cash in your wallet for Friday night drinks. That's how mm-hmm. I always saw it. And then when I was on mat leave, I had a few students and I did give I had, I think when Matilda was maybe a month, a month old, five weeks, six weeks, I'd strap her, I'd strap her into the carrier and go over to people's houses and tutor with her in the carrier. I would sometimes feed her while I was tutoring Uh, I got really good at that Mm -hmm. um change nappies on the floor of children's bedrooms that's I just they knew I had a baby sometimes the parents would take her and play with her while I tutored it was great and then they'd still pay me at the end I'm like but you babies anyway it was great Mm -hmm. and I felt like it kept my head in the game I didn't want to lose my head and then when I changed jobs, a few students found me on LinkedIn from the school I was at and said, we really want you to tutor us. So that started what has now become me tutoring quite a number of students from that school. But I'm in the process of transferring to a group tutoring model using Zoom. I'm not there yet. That would be the goal. Because the thing about tutoring is, you know, you could tutor as many kids as you can fit into a week. Then it's finite. That's how many you can help. Yeah. And say that's four for some people or if you know I was like oh I could go part-time and tutor eight or 16 I don't know there's still only so many hours in the day and what I find is is I often do the same not exactly the same thing but similar things over and over again and I've been inspired about yeah running group tutoring that's not sure how I would advertise it 
make it happen if I could manage it because at the moment it's just one-on-one and if the kid doesn't need me that week I'm like yeah that's fine yeah I think um, we have to get into schools actually I'm thinking that's my feeling is that you know if you yeah. were available for a particular text I could get groups together for you and go oh my gosh, yes. but, but don't, don't you reckon that's what that would be that would be the best way of doing it getting into schools and saying these are the days or these are the texts I'm willing to tutor have you got kids that would be interested and then getting the schools to kind of find the kids and deliver them to you I've never thought about doing that that's awesome yeah so I think what I can offer is and it's a certain sort of kid that I tutor really well I think which is the ones that really like discussing texts a lot of my tutoring sessions are me with two books open them with two books open and I'm not necessarily telling them what to highlight but we'll go and we'll deep dive into different areas and we'll break down essay topics and write plans. And then I send them off for the week and they have to write whatever we've actioned in that hour. And then the next week they meet me, we go through what they've written and then we do another topic or another idea. And the group the group sessions I'd run are the same. But what happens is everyone, there's a group document and they all have to write. And then each week they get everyone's writing. And I think that's the benefit. You know, you've got... Mm multiple and I give feedback on all of them and they know that I'm I'm going to do that and I'm kind obviously I would never rip a kid to shreds in a group tutoring session but none of them need to because they're all there because they're they're doing well but they want the edge you know and I think that edge comes from I trawl uni databases especially for the classics I read tertiary journals that are often quite inaccessible and I break them down into a more sometimes I send them straight to the kids actually if they're they're accessible but you know what's you know what some some of those journals are really tricky especially the ones that actually reference the ancient Greek for women of Troy so I do that I also ran I ran a Claire talks texts so a live for for women of Troy and six people (laughs) six people came but that's where you start yeah and they paid they paid twenty dollars a person so that was not mm. nothing to nothing to scoff at by any means, and I got really good feedback. You know, from everyone who did come, I have sent them a Google form and asked them some questions about. Yeah, it was kind of a dipping my toe in the water, but it was yeah, it wasn't a it wasn't a. I'm going to tell you everything. I'm going to start at the start of the text and tell you what the text is about. It was uh, an investigation into different ways to read and interpret the play. So the the I think. It, it's something mm. it's not what it wasn't a revision lecture yeah it was a interpretation well like a depth really it's not about you know yeah. your basic understanding of the text it's about well how do we get deeper and how do we offer our own interpretation into this text that yeah well I think you're right it's just something about getting that edge getting you that a plus right it's not about just getting it through it's about what's the depth that you can show in your exploration mm. yeah I like that when I asked for feedback at the end of the session, a few of the kids said, well, how do you put these ideas into an essay? And I was like, okay, fair call. You know, there's probably more work I could do to scaffold that for them. But I'm not going to write you an essay and for you to memorise it and then regurgitate it on the exam. I'm not going to do that. And Mm -hmm. some students who want tutoring, I think that's what they want. Some parents want They want the tutor to do their work for them. And that's why tutoring gets... Yes, and tutoring gets a bad rap for that. So I think some mm. English teachers are a bit wary of yeah. tutors and probably for good reason because there's a lot of people out there who are tutoring who are just mm. doing the work for for the student 
I generally feel if you've got an English teacher as your mm -hmm. tutor, there's like it's like a code. Do we not have a code? <laughs> you know. Yeah, you don't do it. You don't. I've I've had to say that to parents before. Like I've had parents ask me, "Can you just get her through?" And I said, "You need yeah. to find someone else. I'm not going to write things for your." child to memorize that's not who I am if you want that kind of tutor you yeah. can hire someone else yeah. non-teacher go find a non-teacher <laughs> I think that's yeah. the thing I think that the tutoring world or market is quite heavily influenced by people who themselves did very well in year 12 so yes it's like I did really well so I'm going to offer tutoring now and in fact if you look at a lot of those tutoring companies that's the sort of people who are, I, I worry a little bit about that because do we want students to just learn how to get a good ATAR? Yeah, no. Yeah. I, I, want, I want to teach them how to think yep. and I want to teach them and, may, listen, maybe I'm an idealist when it comes down to it, but I think through my tutoring, through my tutoring, no, but, like, I, I, I feel that I can affect that in students. And, you know, I've got a, there's a student I'm working with at the moment, they're doing reckoning and namesake, which is a really, uh, really beautiful text pairing. And he said to me the other day, you were talking a lot about form. He, I, I, I hammer about form, like talk about the form of the text. One's a memoir, one's a novel. So, you know, why is that important? Yeah. Why will, you know, Magda Zabanski has written reckoning. It's a memoir. She's not going to portray herself in the same negative light as an, uh, novelist yeah. writing a narrative will yeah. you know and he said oh so I was looking at the fact that the namesake is written with chapters that are numbered mm. chronologically and everything happens chronologically whereas Magda Zabanski there's no numbers it's just all the chapters are named things and it's really kind of a bit disjointed and it's almost like that's what memory's like and I was like so oh, funny we talk right. about this with the longest memory and seven stages one of my mates is a psychology teacher and she oh. talks about it all the time it's that that's actually how memory is constructed it's non-linear non love that yeah and he came and he came and he goes do you reckon do you reckon that he goes, I feel like I'm being a bit lazy, not just finding a quote. And I was like, no, you're not being lazy. Just like was, I was like, that yeah. was the moment I was like, oh, yeah. I've been I've been pushing this idea with you. I haven't been telling you what. I've been we've been talking about form and talking about uh, I've been asking him questions about it. And then, you know, he thinks that he's being his words were like, Am I being a bit lazy to do that? And I was like, no, that's that's actually really sophisticated analysis. It was just the best moment, you know, yeah. and that's that's what good. Well, that's tutoring, teaching. It's all you know, leading a department. I think it's all kind of you want to have those moments um, with whoever you're working with, where they're feeling so empowered and they're feeling like they can analyze this text, take over the world, change their pedagogy, whatever you know, whatever it is. You want them to feel that sense of efficacy in themselves. My favourite thing is to, is to not be necessary in the end. It sounds awful, but, like, to ask a question and for the class to take it and I could leave the room and it would still yeah. go. That's what I love. That's my favourite thing. Do you know Glenn Pearsall? The, he runs PD, but he's also written a couple of books about teaching. I don't he, know. He talks about that. He is a literature teacher. Mm. The best lit classes are where the teacher actually says Nothing. 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 Yeah, you are being the best teacher you can be. So yeah, 
Well, Glenn Pearsall said so. He's awesome, by the way. (laughs) Another person that I'll have to look into. All right, we are going to go to our last couple because I think that we've kind of hit most of the questions in roundabout ways, which tends to happen, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Last two questions. If you could wave a magic wand, if you could change the education system and have it the way you wanted it, what would you do? I'd make it more flexible. I think there's a lot of people who don't get into teaching, and I know people who have said to me, I like the idea of teaching, but it's so inflexible. Uh, Other jobs are not like ours where we have to be, you know that idea, we have to be on site from this point to this point. And I I get that there's logistical reasons why, but it's my magic wand, okay? So I'm I'm waving it. We're a bit infantilized. There's a presumption that if we're not physically on site in a classroom or in our office, we're not doing our jobs despite COVID. I thought COVID might change that, but it hasn't. But I just, I imagine to myself an education system where there is more independence for students, more autonomy for teachers. People could teach part-time easily and do something else. People could work in industry and be a teacher. Maybe that we didn't have to go camping and sleep in tents and deep (laughs) holes to go to the toilet once a year just because we love literature. I actually quite like camping, but not with teenagers. Um, yeah, I don't do that. <laughs> the flexible, independent schools, everyone goes. Mm-hmm. Um, that would, yeah, just I think flexibility, I think that encompasses a lot of different things, that flexibility for students, flexibility for staff. If it didn't, I think, you know, education is rooted ultimately in a industrial, yes. post-industrial revolution world Very where we all are in rows because we're going to move from the classroom to the sewing machine. But there's no sewing machines anymore. So, well, we, because of COVID, and we have big open staff rooms, like we have a junior campus and a senior campus, and we're all in the same staff room. There's no oh, wow. small. So, it means that there's way too many people in one space. So, we do teach and go at the moment when we're back on site, which is yeah. the most revolutionary thing that's ever happened to me because you come in. You teach, you stay if you need to. If you don't, you can. I can do the groceries oh. in my recess time rather oh. than sitting around having a cup of tea. Yeah. I'm so much more functional yeah. because I can get those few little things done that actually impact my time outside of school quite negatively. If I want during a lunch break, I can come home, I can go for a run or a walk this rather than sitting incredible. at my desk and eating like last night's mm. dinner. You know, that agency for staff and that trust that we're getting at the moment from leadership is huge. And I would say I'm way more productive doing it like that. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I'm stuck at my desk, I'm feeling like, oh, I'll just do my photocopying or I'll just chat to a friend. Whereas I'll come home and I'll actually get that work done. Yeah. So, because show me a teacher who isn't prepped, you know, we're all, because we, because it's not for us our job isn't for us our job is for all those faces in our classroom and we know that feeling of not being prepared or that feeling when you know when you walk in and you haven't got your marking done for whatever reason even if it's a really excellent one and they're little faces yep and you don't want to feel that no i'm going to come teach you your school no <laughs> you can go. well i think you mean you can use covid the covid excuses obviously are a very real one yeah but the agency that it has provided and our leadership this year has been amazing in, you know, if you need one day where you are not live for the day, that's okay. And if parents have complaints, they will call leadership and leadership handles it for you. Things like that to support staff well-being 
has been instrumental in getting us through and making us want to do a good job rather than survive yeah because we feel supported and valued how do you go with just logistical question now covers so because that's always the argument I think is like well we have to have people there in case of a cover or you know in lieu or whatever well ultimately all of our covers are announced by 8 30 yeah so you know yeah, what you're doing so you by 8 30 yeah yeah so you get in the morning yeah. I mean yeah you've got to kind of be there having said that they're up at 8 30 so if you're at home and you don't teach until period two you can check at 8 30 whether or not you've got an extra yeah and then you can stay home until then so there's things 45. yeah there's always ways of doing it and I mean a lot of staff a lot of staff obviously live relatively close to the school but if you've got that big commute then you wouldn't you wouldn't wait for the extras list. You'd be on your way. Yeah. So, yeah, that's oh what we're doing and it's great. Yes. Yeah, We. I thought that might be what we'd do but we haven't. We've gone and even we have to, yeah, we have to be on site from 8 a.m. till 4 p.m. even if. Have to be on site. Mm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. This is the other thing I consider too because my daughter is going to primary school next year and the first term so a lot of primary schools have one day off in the yes. first like five weeks they don't they have an early finish every single day so she'll be going five days but they finish at 2 30 or quarter past two or something so that's a logistical nightmare Absolutely. for us but also even when she finishes at 3 30 I finish at 3 15 you know if I would have if I had to stay at my school till four o'clock that's logistically very difficult mm. and in a way unfair because I'm a working parent mm-hmm. who will do their job. Yeah. It will be done. Yeah. I just don't want to have to ha- have 17 other arrangements because I'm no. sitting around at work when I could have done exactly like I was just saying about the groceries. If yeah. I could quickly do my groceries in that 20 minute, you know, recess that ultimately otherwise I'd be sitting there having a cup of tea. And I think that, that makes my life better and easier and more streamlined. And you know when you have small children and, and you're a teacher the only, well, and any actually, if you work and you have small children, the only time you really get with your kids is after, at the end of the day, before they go to bed. Mm-hmm. So the earlier you can get home from work, the more meaningful quality family time you can have. And they're in bed by seven, if you know, if mm-hmm. you're lucky. And then the whole night stretches ahead of you that you can catch up on work. So I have made it a point that I, that time from kind of five till seven is sacrosanct. Yes. sometimes I do have a meeting till 5 30 occasionally but generally I you know and I am present the laptop is closed my phone is away and it's just we're cooking dinner we're having a bath we're reading books and I am the most present and I love that time so much and I look forward to it every day mm-hmm. and sometimes people call me from work because some people are still working at five or six o'clock that's fine I'll call them back I'll say you know I can call you at seven or tomorrow and no one has ever said, well, you should call me back now. That's never happened. Things that have never happened. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the thing is, it's the pressure that you put on yourself, isn't it? To, to be all for everyone and you can't. And I think it's a hard one coming back after maternity leave when you were the person that was there till five I o'clock was. and staying back. And I was doing all of Locking those things. And now I'm like, school at 10 o'clock at night because I had, they'd said, we need someone because there's an aerobics competition. I'll go, yeah, I'll stay. I'm going to be here anyway, you know. No longer. Yeah. But I think that flexibility, as you say, isn't quite there yet. I'm I'm hoping COVID shows leaders, principals, the department mm. that we are trustworthy, yeah. that we all get the job done. Mm. 
that we don't have to be held to a clock because teachers, as you know, do not work the time they're at school anyway. They work far beyond far it. Beyond. I think I feel like the average week, I want to say the average week for a teacher I read somewhere is about you know 55 to 60 hours mm-hmm. on a 38-hour paid week. Mm-hmm. But it's all the things you do, like listening to a podcast on the way to work that yeah. is teacher-related or text-related. You know, there's always, you're always doing something. Always. Always. Okay, last question. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Greatest lessons you've learned in your life, and they do not have to be academic school-related, but they can be if you like. Mm. See, when I read your list of questions, I think I was like, oh, yeah, I've got answers to all of those. I didn't get, I didn't, I don't have a prepared answer for this, so I'm just going to have to go with um, yeah. uh, my gut lessons I have learned in life things are always better after a good night's sleep okay it's never (laughs) when things feel really awful take a moment go to sleep it'll be better in the morning Mm -hmm. offshoot to that don't send the email that night save it into your drafts go to sleep wake up in the morning and decide if you still want to send it Mm -hmm. I think it's okay to be selfish as a teacher because probably being selfish as a teacher is just a regular amount of self-interest with people who aren't in education. When you're feeling selfish as a teacher, you're actually just caring for yourself usually because you don't do it enough. You know, someone said to me, you're supposed to be the protagonist in your own story. Yes. You are supposed to be the main character. You are supposed to center yourself in your own life. It's not selfish not selfish you can put yourself first mm-hmm. you can put yourself first and most recently I've learned that um sitting on the couch and eating chocolate and not exercising during lockdown is not the healthiest way to go <laughs> <laughs> it's taken me to lockdown 6.0 yeah. to um I think nourish nourishing your body is yeah. as important as nourishing your mind mm-hmm. and I think I worked a bit too much last year for a range of reasons, new job, baby, trying to be all things to all people, wanting to prove myself, wanting to establish myself in a new role, all of those things. And, of course. Of yeah. course. Yeah. So it's pretty normal, but I think in a new role. But this year I've just tried to put in some more boundaries. I appear offline at night and on weekends, even if I'm working, because I wouldn't want my team to see me online. Not, not, no, I don't want, I wouldn't want, if I've chosen to work at night, that's because I've probably done something and I'm making that time up in my in my head. Yes. So I wouldn't. You don't want it to feel like an expectation for your team. And delay delivery. So emails are sent at 8 a.m. That's another thing I do because my boss always knows though because I CC her in a whole lot of things and she gets like 14 emails from me at 8 a.m. and she's like, you were working late, weren't you? <laughs> you know yeah but that's but having said that that's a good tool i've only recently found that yeah, delay delivery that delay delivery it's excellent i love it they're my lessons i don't know i'll think of another lesson later and be like oh i'll comment on it <laughs> on, yes. the, on the insta yes. i don't know if that was very good yeah, lessons, but you know and as what is it rupaul says you'll love yourself before oh is it terrible now i've forgotten because it's late at night well, RuPaul, do you watch RuPaul's Drag Race? I don't. Oh. I'm so sorry. And I watch a lot of, a lot of like really trashy TV and I have not adopted the Drag Race. Oh, you must. <laughs> do you want to Google it? Yeah, I'm doing do it, it now because Google. it's so good. Why? 
If you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? You're almost there. I was almost there. She says it at the end of every episode and then everyone says amen. I love it. RuPaul. RuPaul. Also, watch RuPaul's Drag Race because it's really excellent. Thank you so much for everything. For somebody who had didn't didn't think they had a lot to say, you certainly <laughs> said a lot. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think I didn't think I had anything to say, but turns out I did. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, it's talking cool, about huh? it's like therapy. Talking about myself for a couple of hours. Thanks, friend. Pleasure. And also, you realize this is what I have a lot of people say. You realize how much you actually have learnt in this job and how much you really do. Because it's very rare that you get to have a conversation like this. I used to like this in my reviews as well. When we have reviews booked, everyone's like, oh, I'm like, I actually kind of like it because mm-hmm. it really makes me consider what I've done and what I've accomplished and where I'm headed. And mm-hmm. I kind of like being accountable for those things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs>